Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And the novel that we are covering in this episode is A Caribbean Mystery. Is it Caribbean or is it Caribbean, Kemper? (laughs) We're just going to say this right up top since we are challenged when it comes to pronunciations at times. It could be either or either. <laughs> we are I probably going to pronounce it both ways because it, what Catherine and I have learned is that I tend to say Caribbean, whereas she tends to say Caribbean. So a Caribbean mystery, a Caribbean mystery. You do you, listener. Before we even get into a Caribbean mystery, I have a little bit of uh, housekeeping that I want to take care of here coming off of our last two novel episodes, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side and The Clocks. And this is coming from listeners who wrote in to us, uh, you know, who we always love hearing from. So first off, I just want to encourage you to continue writing to us and in that spirit to share with you all a few ways that you schooled us on a few points that we made or didn't make in those episodes. So, uh, first of all, and this actually has to do with Miss Marple specifically, so this is relevant to our discussion in A Caribbean Mystery, but fast forward, if you haven't read The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, but we totally glossed over one of the final moments of that book in our episode. You know, at the end of that novel, it is heavily implied that instead of Marina Gregg having killed herself, it's actually her husband, Jason Rudd, who kills her in a sort of pity kill scenario, I guess we could say, given that Marina's gone totally crazy. She's killed three people and Jason is seemingly letting her get away with it by mercy killing her. And it's significant because this is a rare case in which Miss Marple opts for an extrajudicial ending a la Poirot. And there were a lot of you who wrote in about this to say, hey, you didn't really mention that there's this strange ending to that novel, which is so weird, especially in a Miss Marple. Am I crazy? Did I just misread it? And I just wanted to take this moment to say, no, you are not crazy. And it is significant. You know, sometimes these these conversations have a life of their own as we're recording and we fail to say things even though we're thinking them. (laughs) So I think that would be one of those cases because it's absolutely implied and quite heavily in the text that, you know, this was Jason Rudd actually acting on his own behalf for his wife and Miss Marple very much condones it and certainly is not going to haul him in to a magistrate. And um, that is, you know, I think the only instance in which that happens. I mean, that is, you know, Poirot 101. He's constantly... Yeah, constantly doing that. (laughs) Yeah, do stuff like that. But not Ms. Marple. I mean, she is very much a law and order sort of a person, but not in that case. So it is a significant moment. I just didn't want to uh, give short shrift to it. So secondly, and this is actually really fun. In that same novel, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, we brought up the fact that Christie seemed to have recycled an unfortunate plot point from an earlier novel, Murder in Mesopotamia. So fast forward if you haven't read that one either. This, of course, would be the infamous proposition that a wife wouldn't be able to recognize a man she was previously married to. However, one of you dear listeners wrote in from Northern Europe with the following, and I'm just going to read it out verbatim. 
The story about not recognizing your first husband, the mirror cracked, is silly, I agree with you. But it actually happens in real life. My aunt was to help a friend and work in a bar in the countryside for some evenings. And as my aunt said, this old guy came up to me in the bar and he said, you, re- you really don't recognize me, do you? No, should I? She replied. And he said, yes, since we have been married. They were together as a couple from when my aunt was 15 to 25 years old, but time goes by and we change. So there you have it, folks. Far be it from us not to give Christy credit where credit is due. Apparently, this can actually happen in real life. I love that we have been doing this long enough that we finally got proof that one of Christy's most outlandish plot points actually has some basis in reality. I think it's a little harder to believe in murder in Mesopotamia specifically since a woman unknowingly marries the same man twice. (laughs) It's not just (laughs) failing to recognize him in a bar. It's actually marrying him. But, you know, maybe that makes Marina Gregg's apparent failure to recognize her first husband, Arthur Badcock. Maybe it makes that go down a little more easily. Um, Incidentally, we should also call out the fact that we called poor Arthur Badcock Alfred throughout that mirror cracked episode. So our apologies, Alfred. I I mean, Arthur. (laughs) That irked a couple of you as well. Yeah, Uh, you know, we record this very late at night, guys. It happened. It happened. I will just say in Christy, so many names, so much time. But, uh, you know, occasionally we're going to get them a little wrong. That was an unfortunate one since we did have to reference him a bunch. But yes, apologies, Arthur. And then finally, in our episode as to the clocks, we talked about how there's mention in the text of a previous girl guide case of Poirot's. And we were theorizing that maybe that was an erroneous reference to the Miss Marple novel, The Body in the Library, or maybe it was referencing the backpackers in Dead Man's Folly who weren't girl guides. But as many of you pointed out, there is an honest to goodness girl guide in Dead Man's Folly. And fast forward, if you haven't yet read Dead Man's Folly, but that would of course be our murder victim at the fate. Poor Marlene Tucker. She was a girl guide. So that is a valid reference that uh, was made to a previous Poirot case in that book. Our apologies to Agatha Christie for ever doubting her. And many of you picked up on that. So I just wanted to uh, set the record straight so to speak, on that point. So there you have it, folks. And now I would say let's move on to the story at hand, A Caribbean Mystery. Can you, Catherine, tell us a little bit about the publication history for this novel? I definitely can, because it was first published in the UK by Collins Crime on Guess When, Kemper? Oh, boy. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say November 16th. Maybe so. 1964. Yes, the best day in the calendar, the day of one Catherine Brobeck's birth. Congratulations, (laughs) Catherine. It was published by Dodd Mead the next year in the U.S. And I guess there was a later Canadian serialization. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to have been serialized in the UK or the US, which is interesting. You know, the serializations seem to be tapering off a bit as we get into the 60s, which makes sense. You know, I think that that sort of robust market for the serialization of novels that we had, especially in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, seems to be a little less robust now that we're squarely in the mid-60s. 
But before we get into our victim and start breaking down the story, I would just like to point out that there was a working title for this one, which was Shadow in Sunlight. And I think you'll appreciate, Catherine, why Christy felt the need to uh, use a working title. Per Janet Morgan, Agatha had tired of the struggle to spell Caribbean. Caribbean is just it is a word that just has so many pitfalls as to pronunciation and spelling fun fact Caribbean is actually one of the most commonly misspelled words in the English language and our good friend John Curran actually has something to say about this as well I'm just going to quote him because this is delightful for some years there has been a theory in the popular press that Agatha Christie suffered from dyslexia I have no idea where this originated but even a cursory glance at the notebooks gives the lie to this story. The only example that could be produced in evidence is her struggle with Caribbean, one R, two Bs, and Caribbean, two R's, one B, throughout the notes for a Caribbean (laughs) mystery. And I think in that, she would not be alone. And I have to agree. Uh, Well, I always have this problem with the word embarrass. With the two Mm -hmm. R's. Yeah, with the two R's. Yeah. I always have this problem. And listen, I embarrass myself enough that I spell embarrass quite often. Yet every single time I have to look at it twice. I feel her on this one. I do too. I mean, it is very confusing that there's only one R and two B's. You know, it is. you just have to memorize the word as you do with so many English words. It's a tough one. We should also note that there was initially an extra page inserted into the beginning of this novel that read as follows, and I'm getting this from uh, our other good friend, Mark Aldrich, in his book, Agatha Christie on screen. Featuring Miss Marple, the original character as created by Agatha Christie. And as Mark writes, it is hard not to see this as a sideswipe aimed at the Rutherford pictures, which of course is ironic given that our last Miss Marple novel, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, was dedicated to Margaret Rutherford. So this was put in there because we're right, you know, at this point in the middle of those MGM Miss Marple movies coming out. And apparently Christy felt the need to just separate her Miss Marple from that Miss Marple. And I think that the next Miss Marple novel also had that little preface to it. So it's, uh, it's interesting that she felt the need to do that. We should also just note the dedication because it becomes important as to the setting of this novel. Uh, it reads as follows to my old friend, John Cruikshank Rose with happy memories of my visit to the West Indies. And we won't get into who John Rose was, but it's, it's really worth noting because Christie stayed at the Coral Reef Hotel in Barbados in 1956. And that was the first year that uh, this hotel opened. It is actually still possible this very moment to rent rooms there. You could check it out online, but fortunately we don't have to travel there to see it because it is actually where the Joan Hickson version is set. But we'll talk about that a little later when we get to the adaptations. Janet Morgan had a little bit to say about the setting, which I think just kind of sets the stage nicely before we get into the story. And she said, her island was a composite. Some features were remembered from Barbados, where she had noticed an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair on whom she built the character of Mr. Raphael, who was to figure again in Nemesis. A book about the birds and flowers Mm -hmm. of Tobago provided further ideas and recollections of people she had seen on another holiday gave the essence of the plot. And what 
reminded me of is how she almost went to the West Indies in 1929. That was, you know, in the aftermath of her divorce and everything that had happened with the breakdown of her marriage. And she was all set to go to the West Indies. And then on the spur of the moment, she decided to go to the Middle East instead. And the rest was history. So I'm glad that, you know, about 30 years later, she finally got to the West Indies. And we have this book to come out of that trip. So I suppose we should uh, talk about our victim, Catherine. Well, we have several. I'll start with the one that sets us off, which is one Major Palgrave, who is an elderly blowhard with apparently a high blood pressure issue, maybe. And he likes to drink quite his share of planter's punch, despite that, and also happens to be a major gossip. Major (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) Pun intended. Yeah, we've never seen an older, retired military man in a Christie novel before, right? No, not ever. Jeez. Not ever. Not ever, (laughs) no. Then our second victim is Victoria Johnson, who is a Caribbean woman. Uh, She is working at the resort where everyone is staying, and she seems to have some suspicions about the death of Major Paul Graves. She seems to know something that others don't, and she is found stabbed to death. And then we also have Lucky Dyson, who is not so lucky. She's the wife of Greg Dyson, who we'll get to. She's pretty and blonde. Indeed. All right. Well, let's talk about our suspects. We are on an island here at a resort, so we have a traditional closed circle of suspects. It's pretty much everyone who we meet at the resort. And first up is Tim Kendall, who is the owner of the resort, or one half of the owners of the resort. And who is his better half, or is she better? Uh, Molly Kendall. And she seems to maybe have an anxiety problem, but is like otherwise a very nice woman. Yeah. Aside from that nervous breakdown that seems to be tearing her life apart as the novel progresses, Mm -hmm. she seems to be doing quite well. Yeah. Then we have Mr. Raphael, who I already mentioned. He is an elderly, we could even say ancient, rich man. He is super, super old. He hails from the north of England. He is wheelchair-bound. He is cantankerous, quite a personality, quite an excellent personality, actually. He is a great character. And he and Miss Marple are going to have a lot to say to each other. Indeed. And so we have uh, Jackson, who is Mr. Raphael's valet, and he's also a masseur. Next up, we have Ms. Esther Walters, who is Mr. Raphael's secretary. And she seems to be very good at her job. She's good at calming down the cantankerous Mr. Raphael. We also do learn that she is a widow. We do. And then we have Greg Dyson, who I believe is a botanist. Is that correct? Or does he just really like nature? Yeah, there's, I mean, we, we have this quartet Mm -hmm. of people here that seem to be involved in botany slash entomology. They're sort of naturalists who are ostensibly there to be observing you know, the birds and the bees, but they end up observing a very different kind of birds and the bees, if you get my drift, since there's a whole, whole lot going on among this four. Oh, yeah. It's a menage a quatre. 
Ab- instead of a menage a trois. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And Greg, so Greg is the husband of Lucky, who we already mentioned will become our third victim. So that's one couple. And then the second couple in this menage is Edward Hillingdon, who himself may be having an affair with Lucky. Again, there's a lot of crossover happening between these couples. It's all very cosy fantuti and, you know, many other, <laughs> yes. many other stories that you can think of from, oh, you know, the last 2000 years. And uh, his wife is Evelyn Hillingdon, who seems not super pleased with all the hijinks that are happening between her husband and Lucky. Right. And then uh, last but not least, maybe least, actually, we have um, the Canon Prescott and Miss Prescott. They're both kind of just gossips. That's like the nicest way to talk about them. I'm noticing the pattern of gossipy, acidulated spinster sister and henpecked brother, right? Although in this case, the canon isn't really so henpecked. He actually is pretty controlling about what his sister um, right. does and says. And it's and it's interesting. Um, you know, perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about them later. But this is another of those brother-sister pairs where even though they're siblings, they're acting like an old married couple. Right, they are. All right, Catherine, can you tell me a little bit about the world as it appears to be in St. Honoré, which is, yes, a fake made-up Caribbean island. It's, you know, basically Barbados, since we know that's where Agatha Christie actually went. But uh, what is going on in St. Honoré? Well, our beloved Miss Marple had a bout of health issues, and it's very much described up front that she is now very old. Like, in essence, we are back to short story Jane Marple here. She's, in fact, even wearing gray lace in a tropical climb. Yeah. It's not black lace, and there's no mantilla involved, but it is lace nonetheless. <laughs> right. And so um, Raymond West and uh, Joan, Raymond's wife, uh, decide that she simply must recuperate in the Caribbean. So they pay for her to go there, and they set up a friend of theirs to house sit in St. Mary Mead. As Raymond West describes him, he'll look after the house, all right. He's very house proud. He's a queer. I mean, and then Christy writes, he had paused, slightly embarrassed, but surely even dear old Aunt Jane must have heard of queers. How? It's a rare direct reference to homosexuality. Male homosexuality, by the way. I mean, like, what is the implication there? I can say this as a gay man. I mean, the implication is that gay people take really good care of their houses. They're very house proud. Are you a good gardener, Kemper? (laughs) No. No, I'm not. You've never heard the term PGO? No. Previously (laughs) gay-owned? No, I've actually never heard that. It's used to kind of indicate that the house is probably in really good shape. It's been cared for very well and kept up to date and all the appliances are in working order. And, you know, I don't think it's as to gardening so much as just, you know, the house will be in good working order. I mean, good to know for future reference, for sure. I mean, or not I, because it's obviously a, a wild stereotype. But you know, it, it. By the way, like that is not a depiction stuck in its time. I appreciate the way that Christie handles that moment between Raymond West and Miss Marple because the implication, of course, is yeah. By the way, remember in the mirror cracked from side to side. I mean, Miss Marple was kind of hinting to a character that she knew he was gay. 
And that that actually was uncomfortable. But yeah, I'm, I, I I would say that Miss Marple is aware that there are gay people in the world, wouldn't you? Oh, I mean, Miss Marple's aware of everything. I just am very concerned that her garden is going to go to pot while she's away. Well, she's so elderly now that she can't even do anything. Remember from the mirror crack from side to side, she has that gardener who always has an excuse, right? To not. I know, but I feel so terrible for her because like, you know, her garden is so important for her watching the neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. So Miss Marple is able to go abroad and, you know, that's very nice of Raymond West and his wife, Joan, that they did this for her because they've sent her to a posh resort that has a lot of regulars at it. Most of the other people who we meet here uh, have been going for years. This is Miss Marple's first time, but it is not their first time whatsoever. And that includes almost all of the suspects who we listed above, of course. And Miss Marple is pretty much bored by everyone. It's a great sort of opening as there so often is in a Miss Marple novel where she's reading these modern novels that Raymond West keeps on trying to make her read and people are referencing this scandal that happened at the hotel but apparently it just involved a lot of people who were you know half off off their mind on drugs and she's very much bored by that kind of of a murder scandal and this just isn't her cup of tea so to speak. She would much rather an old-fashioned village scandal about which she could gossip with her friends. And she just is feeling a little bit out of place. But then she is essentially stalked by Major Palgrave, who, as, you know, a gossipy old boar, is a little bit more, actually, her cup of tea, even though he's a big boar. And he just keeps on sitting down next to her and wants to gossip and tell all these old war stories of his from when he was in Africa and brag about all of his daring exploits. And this includes the fact that he knows of a wife murderer, apparently. And he actually carries the man's picture around in his wallet. He has this sort of ridiculous reason as to why he would even have a photograph. You know, Christie does manage to make it somewhat believable that he would have this photograph of a wife murderer in his wallet. We should also note that he has a glass eye. Trust (laughs) us that this will be relevant, but he he does. Definitely relevant. He's sort of rifling through his wallet. You know, he's looking for this photograph of this wife murderer that he's about to show Miss Marple. And he seems to even be looking down at it before he shows it to her when he looks up and then he looks down at the photo and he shuts it back up in his wallet and he seems very flustered. And like he basically saw something weird and something that made him uncomfortable. And Everyone is more or less on the scene when this happens. So Miss Marple doesn't really know who he was looking at. And it is very, you know, specifically blocked in this moment as well. Mm -hmm. That on one side of sort of the patio where they are over her shoulder, we have that quartet, right, of couples, the couples that seem to all be intermingling and sleeping around with each other. And that seems to be where the major is looking. But on the other side of Miss Marple, over her other shoulder, Tim and Molly Kendall are kind of doing their thing because they're the owners of the resort and they're always out and about. And and the others are also in and around the area as well. We're we're not able to limit our suspects at this point. The glass eye is not moving with the other one. In modern times, technology has become better at that, but she can't follow where he's looking. I mean, if she had to guess, she's guessing that he's looking 
where there are more people over her shoulder, which is where Greg and Lucky and Edward and Evelyn are sitting. That seems to be where he's looking. Mm-hmm. But given that he has a glass eye, you know, we certainly shouldn't be making any assumptions because we should never be making any assumptions in a Christie. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Major Palgrave, he's dead the next morning, Kemper. And it just seems like it's because he's old. You know, again, he was drinking all that planter's punch and his heart medication is found in the cottage's bathroom and it's written off. And Dr. Graham, who comes, uh, he's essentially serving as the island coroner. He comes and he confirms it. And, um, you know, it's basically written off. The drug that he takes is called serenite which is another invented drug of Christie's, just like Calmo in a mirror crack from side to side. Although, as Catherine Harkup notes in A's for Arsenic, this drug is very tangential to the murders, unlike in the mirror crack from side to side. So it's less of an issue that she made up a drug again. But just interesting that she was doing this more in these later novels. Serenite does not actually exist. Yeah, although I have noticed watching a lot of online stuff, Kemper, during quarantine, that all I get for some reason are prescription drug ads. (laughs) And every single one is for something that's basically like sexamethacolmo. And then it's like the side effects may cause delusions. They may cause the walls to move. They may cause heart palpitations. It may cause digestive issues. It may cause kidney failure. It may, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this for that you would take this? Those are all the side effects. (laughs) So I don't know that Christy was making up that much more uh, name wise than some of these current companies are. Oh, no, I think it's a good name. I think it's a good name for a made-up drug, as yeah, is Calmo, so. actually. Oh, Calmo's, Calmo's, Calmo's great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd take Calmo. Give me some Calmo right now. I I'm, could use it. Please. Seriously, we uh, after after the last year, I think we could all use some Calmo. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where, the, you know, the book gets a little weird from here, and we'll be talking about this, I think, in setting and tone, because the narrative perspective shifts a lot. We've got, you know, this is written from the third person, as almost all Miss Marple stories are, and Miss Marple doesn't disappear from the novel at all, as she does in some of the earlier novels. She's definitely mm-hmm. front and center, but there's a lot of narrative shifts in perspective. We get a lot of chapters that don't involve Miss Marple, and that are from other characters' points of view, and it seems to just be for the purpose of getting plot on the page, and it's a little awkward. Yeah, it's not just awkward, it's a little confusing, I'd even say, because it's not like there's a page break. It will just go into another perspective. And if it's a super postmodern novel, that's one thing. Sure, that happens all the time. You're attuned to that. But in this, um, not expecting that, 
it was a little odd, I would say. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't find myself confused, but I do agree that there is a little bit of a jerky quality to the narration of this mystery, much more so than in earlier Christie's. And I think it's a little bit of a pattern that I had never noticed until we did this systematic review of Christie's novels in publication order. I think that this goes to the way in which she was breaking up the point of view in a book like The Pale Horse and The Clocks that would shift awkwardly from first person to third person, again, for the sake of getting plot out on the page. It just, it feels less artful than the way that she managed to structure some of her earlier novels. And I think it might go toward the slight decline in quality that we're beginning to see in in these books. It's also that it's close third person in a lot of the cases, and then it switches back out a little bit. Yeah, it's fairly close third person from as to Miss Marple, which is fine because I right. love the fact yeah, that we're pretty to Miss Marple's thoughts. But it is awkward to go from close third person of Miss Marple to close third person of a tertiary character like Dr. Graham or, you know, we have scenes between Victoria and Jim, who she lives with, for example, and then to just switch right back into, to jump right back into a Miss Marple close third. If we were more distant overall, you can, you can get away with those shifts, but I agree. I think it's the intimacy of it that, you know, with a lot of that jumping around, that just makes it a little more awkward than we're used to in a Christie. Right. So, I mean, to the actual plot, Dr. Graham is uneasy about the entire thing. Something is rubbing him the wrong way. Despite the fact that he thinks that, you know, an old man had a heart attack at a resort and died. Something is still upsetting him about it. It's in large part because Palgrave was pretty hale. But to make matters worse, Miss Marple, in her role as dithering old lady, because she's putting on an act starts asking him about the death and she starts asking all these particular questions and he's already nervous and we're actually getting this largely from his perspective too this is again another close third person thing and he is made really uncomfortable and it's not just because she's asking him questions about a patient it's because it's confirming to him in some way that his instinct is right that something is wrong here Right. And Miss Marple's instinct, of course, is coming from the fact that Major Palgrave was about to show her the photograph of a murderer, and then he got flustered by something he saw, put it away, and then was murdered the next day. So she even tries through Dr. Graham to find that photograph and ascertains that the photograph has gone missing. missing. There is no photograph. So she knows that, or she suspects that he was murdered. And her suspicions feed off of Dr. Graham's misgivings. And the thing kind of snowballs from there. And then she does her Miss Marple thing, which is insinuating herself, you know, into conversations as the seemingly benign old lady that she is on the outside. At the same time, however, we then do another one of these shifts (laughs) in perspective And we are with Victoria, who is a Caribbean woman, 
as we mentioned, she was born on the island. She works at the hotel as a maid, and she works for the Kendalls since the Kendalls own the resort. And she tells them that, you know, she had never seen Major Palgrave take blood pressure medication before, and that she had never seen the bottle of blood pressure pills, this bottle of serenite that suddenly appeared in the wake of his death. You know, and she'd been cleaning his room every day, and that something doesn't sit right with her either. And then Victoria is found stabbed to death that night. So yeah, there's definitely something going on here. Yeah. And on top of it, Molly Kendall has been having uh, like some night terrors and she's also been seen out and about at night wandering, like sleepwalking with a knife which doesn't really bode well for an alibi against killing Victoria. But also there's a suggestion that she may or may not be getting poisoned by her skin powder. It's poisoning through the skin, which we've seen in Christie's before. And I think when we're talking about plot mechanics, she's she's recycling some of her earlier stories here in an interesting way. But yes, perhaps that is happening. Miss Marple, at this point, starts making a much more aggressive effort at befriending Mr. Raphael, which is hard to do since he is such a crotchety old man. Oh, yeah. He likes Um, yelling at people. He loves yelling at people. And he more or less tells Miss Marple that Major Palgrave was a blowhard. He told everyone about all sorts of murders that he claims to know something about. There's uh, this implication that he also knew about a murderess and that maybe even that the photo he was going going to show Miss Marple was actually of a woman and not a man because Miss mm-hmm. Marple wasn't listening very closely since he was such a bore, which is kind of a nice little trick on Christie's part because it allows us to continue to suspect all of the women, right. <laughs> which I liked. Yeah. It's always good when we can, you know, keep our list of suspects as wide as possible until our resolution. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of chatter between Jason Raphael and Miss Marple, and they kind of come to an understanding where they both realize that they're each extremely intelligent people, and they have a lot of mutual respect and admiration, but they don't really get all that far between the, no. the two of them when they're talking all of this out. No, they, it's, a, it's a little bit surprising. You think that they'd actually have like a bigger, I don't know, alliance in this than they do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, given that, you know, spoiler, I think I even mentioned it in the Janet Morgan quote up top, but Mr. Raphael is going to be a character who he may not appear in a future Miss Marple, but he's going to figure very prominently in a future Miss Marple. So in a way, he's really a series-long character in the Marpleverse. He's very important to it. And I knew that coming into this novel, and I was actually struck by the somewhat superficial conversations that they have together here. I mean, he is a fantastic character and he's certainly an important character in the story. And they do have a greater understanding than Miss Marple tends to have with people who she's just met, but he's not actually all that important to the figuring out of the mystery. No, actually, like, really surprisingly not at all. I mean, because the next step of this, before we get to the world as it actually is, is that Molly, who at this point seems crazy, 
which she is actually because, again, turns out she's being poisoned with Belladonna. Miss Marple and Mr. Raphael and Jackson pretty much go looking for her. And instead, they find that the similarly blonde Lucky, who also was envious of Molly's clothes, is found dead. At the same time, again, Major Palgrave is exhumed from his very recent burial and checked for poison, and he was, in fact, poisoned. So you would think, again, we have Mr. Raphael involved here now that he'd be important, but... Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe we not. should mention, by the way, Lucky is found drowned. Correct. That is how she yeah. is killed. So let's talk about some clues, Catherine, to bridge us on over into the world as it actually is. Our clue number one is a classic on this podcast. It's simply (laughs) Occam's Razor. When you hear that there is a potential wife killer on the loose, and when eventually, with our third victim, a wife is killed, we should start thinking about uh, men who may have some sort of an interest in killing their wives. And the deduction here is that we don't get too far with this clue, which is good because if we did with the right. Occam's razor clue, there wouldn't be much of a mystery. So let's give Christy her due here. We have a whole bunch of husband wife pairs. I will say we do have, as we always, we so often do a little bit of a flip it and reverse it corollary to this clue because we really are begged throughout the course of this novel to focus on the hijinks that are occupying Greg, Lucky, Evelyn, and Mm -hmm. Edward. Right. Christy is begging us to focus on those to the exclusion of anyone else on this resort. And as astute readers, we may pick up on the fact that, hmm, I think that that Manata cat may actually be a red herring. And if we do pick up on that, maybe there is another husband here who we should be focusing on. But uh, before we get there, let's talk about clue number two. Well, we already mentioned a Kemper and it's glass eyes. If a heavy point is made about someone's glass eye over and over again, I would expect that it's for a reason. And so if no one can fully tell where he's looking, including Miss Marple, we should assume, and this goes actually to clue number one and the foursome, if we think that he's looking there, he's probably not looking there. That's probably what the actual answer is. He's probably looking in a different direction. Right. And this is, I think, an actually a very ingeniously recycled element from earlier Christie Mysteries. We have seen this ploy of one character looking over another character's shoulder or looking over his or her own shoulder at something that turns out to be significant somehow. It's a small element, so this really isn't spoiling anything, but the mysterious affair at Styles, the man in the brown suit, appointment with death, death comes as the end, the mirror cracked from side to side, we saw quite recently. She uses this again and again. So when we have this set up here of Major Palgrave looking over Miss Marple's shoulder at something. We should just think about this long and hard and realize that it's going to be more complicated than it seems, especially given the fact that he has a glass eye. And, you know, John Curran actually gives big props to Christy because she even ends one of the chapters of this novel with the words, the eye, the eye, repeated. And apparently that chapter originally had a final line, which was Miss Marple gasped, but that was excised from the published version because it might have just been a little too obvious. But she's she's playing fair here 
with this clue. And I just love the fact that like, even though she's playing fair, even though she's done it a million times before, it's still not super obvious actually, but yes, you know, let's, let's X out those two couples. Who else was she looking at? Well, we mentioned that it was Tim and Molly who were on Miss Marple's other side. And, um, that leads us into our clue number three, which is physical resemblance. And this is a very late clue, but we do have lucky Dyson found dead, uh, drowned in water. And she was wearing clothes that looked like Molly Kendall's. She was blonde like Molly Kendall. In fact, people thought it was Molly Kendall who was dead, especially mm-hmm. since Molly Kendall has gone missing and crazy. Correct. But it's not Molly. It's Lucky. So Lucky looks a lot like Molly. And our deduction there is, well, if they look so much alike, maybe the person who killed her thought that it was Molly. And in that case, maybe we should be taking a close look at Molly's husband. And... Mm-hmm. There's our resolution, folks, because the murderer is, of course, Molly's husband, seemingly super nice guy, Tim Kendall, the owner of the resort. Fast forward, if you haven't read Toward Zero, huge, huge Neville Strange vibes here. I mean, this is a seemingly sunny, smart, almost smarmy, nice, jovial, charming, handsome man who just turns out to be a psychopath. He's a serial killer. He oh, was serial he was wife going, murderer. He's a serial wife murderer. And Christie references also at several points in this book the brides in the bath serial mm-hmm. killings, right. which were real. And Tim was going to kill Molly as he had killed two women previously. Mm-hmm. His MO, uh, which Major Palgrave totally mentions at the beginning of the book, was to drive the women crazy until they seemed to or actually did try to kill themselves. He would save them from that attempt only for them to, unfortunately, I'm using air quotes here, go through with kill, it at yeah, a later drown date. in a bathtub or whatnot afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at which point, you know, he, of course, would be the uh, grieving widower. And he was going to do the same thing to Molly. Major Paul Grave, it was looking at the photo and then looking right up and actually looking where he didn't seem to be looking due to the glass eye, but looking over Miss Marple's shoulder at Tim. He saw the resemblance in a way that he hadn't before. Tim, he realized that he had been recognized by Major Paul Grave and he was, you know, planning to kill Molly because that's what he does. So he realized, okay, I have to kill Major Paul Grave to uh, get away with it. And Victoria was observant and realized that that medication had not been in Major Paul Grave's room. And I believe what basically happened is that she had seen Tim Kendall putting the medication in Major Paul Grave's room. And, you know, she had been sort of trying to hint and she hinted successfully to Tim that she knew something so that she could get sort of a kickback and get some money for staying silent. And that very much backfired on her. So she was stabbed to death. And yeah, Tim very much thought that he was killing Molly when he drowned poor Lucky Dyson. And why exactly was it so important for Tim to kill Molly now, Catherine? Because he wanted to marry Esther Walters. And the reason why is because Mr. Raphael was very, very old and he had been told by her because they were flirting that basically she would benefit heavily if he died. Well, he didn't know. I mean, Esther actually didn't even know it was that Jackson, his valet masseur, had been rifling through his employer's uh, belongings and he found the will. Right. Which 
which said that there was this major, I think, 50,000-pound bequest that was going to be given to Esther Walters. Jason Rayfield told Esther Walters she would get nothing when he died, but Jackson then told Tim Kendall about that because they were friendly. They were on friendly terms, and uh, Tim Kendall subsequently set his sights on poor Esther Walters, who fell for him because he's charming and handsome, and uh, he had to do away with Molly, you know, sooner rather than later, or else Esther would slip through his fingers. You know, it reminded me, it reminds me a little bit, weirdly enough, of Shadow of a Doubt, which is pretty much my favorite Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. And that was apparently based on actually like a really, really psychotic story that's much worse than this one. But, you know, he's like the Merry Widow Strangler or something like that, right? Yeah, was, is, he, is he like the Merry Widower, I guess? Is that what he's called? I definitely marry something with Widow in it. Yeah, but he just goes around and marries widows and then they end up dying on him. Yeah, maybe um, it's the Merry Widow Killer. That movie is brilliant. The cities are full of women, middle-aged widows, husbands dead, husbands who've spent their lives making fortunes, working and working. And then they die and leave their money to their wives, their silly wives. And what do the wives do, these useless women? You see them in the hotels, the best hotels every day by the thousands, drinking the money, eating the money, Losing the money at bridge, playing all day and all night, smelling of money. Proud of their jewelry, but of nothing else. Horrible. Faded, fat, greedy women. They're alive. They're human beings. Are they? Yeah, uh, no, and I mean the brides in the bath. I mean that's it's George Joseph Smith is the brides in the bath killer. He was executed in 1915. He killed three women for monetary gain. Apparently, in some cases, it wasn't even very much monetary gain, which is really sad. But he gets mentioned at least three times in this book, and obviously that's key because he did the same thing. You know, it's that idea that someone would actually have this consistent mo, which is a little hard to swallow because it, you would think, why would anyone be stupid enough? to do the same thing over and over again. Of course, they're going to get caught, but you know what? That happens. <laughs> so uh, as Miss Marple says in this very book, murder is stupid. Right. It, you know, it might not be easy, but stupid, it very well could be. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a view wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Before we get into the rankings for this book, we should talk a little bit about the three adaptations that exist for a Caribbean mystery in the English language. 
The first one aired in October of 1983 on CBS. It was a TV movie. This was, you know, when TV movies were ascendant. And it starred Helen Hayes as Miss Marple. We watched the other Helen Hayes adaptation of a Miss Marple novel for They Do It With Mirrors. That was the one in which she co-starred with Betty Davis, who was essentially an animated skeleton rattling around the set, and it was very uh, hard to watch. Who who was this written by, Kemper? Oh, boy. Well, let me give the, the full rundown of the history of this, which is actually really interesting, and we will get there. That's kind of going to be the, you know... The cap on this. This is what you're the, trying... I, yes. I'm trying to cut you off here. <laughs> It's going to be the big reveal, the big reveal as to who wrote this. But um, we've gone over this deal before, but it's just, I think, worth reiterating. In 1979, Warner Brothers Television, they licensed five novels for adaptation as TV films. Murder is Easy, The Man in the Brown Suit, They Came to Baghdad, Destination Unknown, and The Secret of Chimneys. All pretty, quote-unquote, random Christie's, right? Because this is when we were still in the age of the Christie estate being hesitant to license out their bigger titles because they were just dipping a toe in the adaptational waters. As we know, only the first two of those ended up being adapted, Murder is Easy in 1982, The Man in the Brown Suit in 1989, or as I like to refer to them, the Olivia de Havilland one and the Rue McClanahan one, respectively. (laughs) Never forget. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, you know, Warners had plans to do a version of They Came to Baghdad, but that one was abandoned, as we discussed in that episode. And the other two were never really pursued. So instead, they did Sparkling Cyanide in 1983, which, like this adaptation, was set in the present and co-written by Stephen Humphrey and his wife... Sue Grafton of the Alphabet Murders fame. We're both big fans of those books, aren't we? Who isn't? I mean, Well, my favorite fun fact about the Alphabet books by Sue Grafton is that they will never be adapted into film or TV because she she slaved away. She spent decades doing these these very adaptations for Christie and writing other screenplays. And she told her children that she would come back as a ghost and haunt them if they ever allowed her books to be adapted for film or TV. <laughs> so <laughs> I just love that. That's like she's she's lovely. So we're never gonna get, unfortunately, A is for alibi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well but, we're not um, gonna I mean she unfortunately passed away before she finished the whole series, right? Oh, it's so depressing. She passed away the only one she hadn't done is Z. Yeah. She did all of them except for Z. Oh it was I think it was gonna be Z is for zero. There was Y is for yesterday, I believe, is the last one. Very, very Ugh, upsetting. I, know. I cannot it's... recommend those too highly, by the way. They're so much fun. Some of my better, I read a couple of them in the, in the early lockdown, actually, and they were quite appropriate for that time. Yeah, because their heroine is, she's just tough as nails and also a hot mess. And, you know, you just kind of want to hang out with her. Slash being free of her, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Love her. Uh, Yeah, so they did Sparkling Cyanide in 83. They also, by the way, did a remake of Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution with Diana Rigg in the Marlena Dietrich role, which I officially need to watch, like, stat. I cannot believe that I did not know that that existed until, like, this week. 
But um, then Warner's convinced the Christie estate to allow them to do a Miss Marple at long last. So that's why I think it's just worth the lead up because this was a really big deal that they were able to do a Miss Marple finally. And it was this film. So per our good friend Mark Aldrich in his book, Agatha Christie on screen, Alan Shane at Warner Brothers Television had already earmarked Helen Hayes to play the elderly detective following her short but crucial appearance in the opening act of Murder is Easy. And I love that because it's so true. She plays Lavinia Pinkerton, and that role really is Marple-esque, except for the fact that and fast forward, if you haven't read Murder is Easy, Lavinia gets murdered, <laughs> of course, in the opening pages. But it, it is a great role. And I remember Helen Hayes in it. And I love the idea that she was effectively auditioning for Miss Marple in Murder is Easy. As usual, Mark has some interesting facts about uh, these adaptations. And I like actually what he had to say about Helen Hayes because she she was an interesting choice for the role. And he says she was one of America's most acclaimed actresses, one of only a handful of people to achieve an EGOT, that is an Emmy Award, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, of course. In fact, she received two Academy Awards and three Tonys. Then, Mark continues, in her early 80s, she was still active in the industry and would seem to be a natural choice for the producers given the focus on American audiences. However, Hayes' nationality does create some problems when watching her in the role. She casually mentions her home village of St. Mary Mead in England with no explanation of how she has then come to adopt a curious accent that is mostly American with apparent flashes of Scottish. That's a sick burn there from Mark Aldridge as to Helen Hayes, but he's not wrong. Fair enough. Yeah, her accent is not great. And, you know, I think that Helen Hayes is fine as Miss Marple. It's just kind of a toothless version of the character, especially when you compare it to Joan Hickson. Like when Miss Marple leaves at the end of this adaptation, she actually winks at Jason Raphael. No, Miss Marple does not wink. Okay. But, you know, the adaptation does have some highlights. We have a very young Swoosie Kurtz who plays Esther Walters. Her name is changed to Ruth here for some reason. Also, Jameson Parker, who some might know from the 80s detective series Simon and Simon, which he was starring in uh, for CBS at the time. I think he was a really good choice for Timmy Kendall because he's very sunnily handsome and harmless looking. And it's super creepy when he turns out to be the murderer. He's pretty much exactly as I pictured Tim Kendall to be. And I did actually also appreciate Simon fan. A huge Simon and Simon fan, Catherine. I did also appreciate that Dr. Graham is played by a black actor in this adaptation, even though he is very clearly white in the text. So, you know, there's a scene where he's talking to Captain Daventry, who's, you know, one of the officials within St. Honoré about the case. And we have two black characters on screen with no white characters, which is as it should be, given the setting, uh, you know, of this mystery. But I think notable for a Christie adaptation in 1983. But that is the one score, I think, where this adaptation does particularly badly its setting because it is super drab. And it turns out that there's actually a really good reason for that, which is that the film was made in Santa Barbara, which I find really funny given that Sue Grafton wrote it since her alphabet series is set in Santa, Santa Teresa, which is yeah. obvious stand-in for Santa Barbara. Right. But um, apparently it was really cold when they filmed and Helen Hayes said a lot of things were against us like frigid cold and rain every day we worked indoors while it poured and poured and when it stopped we tried to make it look like the tropics I was wearing light clothes over thermal underwear you can kind of tell it does not look 
tropical. There's also some super bad island accents that they make some of the characters put on, which made me cringe, and a really weird sequence where they all dress like pirates, which I think the less that we say about that, the better. And then the last thing I want to say on this, because I just think it's fascinating, is that Mark reproduces a scathing letter from Rosalind Hicks that she wrote to Alan Shane at Warner Television after she watched this adaptation. And I just think it's worth reading out in full because A, she's not wrong, and B, it's kind of entertaining. So here goes. I'm afraid the biggest disappointment, this I think goes for all of us, was the performance of Helen Hayes as Miss Marple. I know she is a bit old, but she is a good actress. I felt she could have put a bit more sparkle into the character. She was quite frankly dull and also very American. You promised me that you would take some note of my criticisms of the American phrasings in your script, like mailing a letter, we posted, things like that, but nothing was done at all. I do believe that Miss Marple should be English! Exclamation point. I don't think enough was made of the Caribbean scenery and the beach and the direction seemed rather slow, all on the same level. The characters aren't sharp enough. It was a good story and the plot was all there, but I'm afraid it seemed dull. It's like, sheesh, tell us how you really feel, Rosalind. She she did not like pull any it. punches. That's a powerful letter. You go, Rosalind. <laughs> it's a really powerful letter. It's funny. I mean, Alan Shane, by the way, remained loyal to Helen Hayes. Apparently, once Joan Hickson started um, doing her series, he said, I found Joan Hickson not as interesting playing Miss Marple as Helen was. Um, yeah, I, I just, I cannot really agree with him. But I would also just like to note that this did perform well against both The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, because that just makes me pine for the 80s that sentence i just wanted to really be able to say that sentence (laughs) i'm Um, very happy for you (laughs) and you know this is also it did well enough that alan shane called up matthew pritchard afterward and said that cbs wanted to do 61 hour versions of miss marple on american network television and then when matthew pritchard was like well we don't have 60 miss marple stories alan shane was like oh that's okay we'll just make them up the estate declined and then uh you know as matthew pritchard relates to mark in his book uh murder she wrote <laughs> turned up on cbs literally within a few months and they were there was talk of suing them but uh ultimately matthew pritchard seems to have taken a pretty philosophical view of this because here's his final word on that in mark's book he says for all the years they were on television i think people did think they were by agatha christie people probably bought thousands of agatha christie books thinking they were murder she wrote so they were probably quite beneficial (laughs) he's probably he's not wrong no it's like 100 percent accurate that it seems like a blatant ripoff and yet at the same time like i when i grew up like i watched miss marples and murder she wrote so yeah i always realized they were separate i mean murder she wrote is just so much better in that they weren't trying to shoehorn themselves into Miss Marple or anything else. It all worked out for the best, basically, because we as fans, I think we're able to have our cake and eat it, too. You know, I know. how else would I have had like 75 million mysteries to watch with my mom that were set backstage in the theater? And <laughs> it was somebody that Jessica Fletcher has somehow is related to because she apparently has 75 million relatives in the theater. <laughs> They're murdered. And then 
let's also never forget that there was only one more Miss Marple that Warner Television did after this, which was they do it with mirrors. And Rosalind, after writing a letter like that, she certainly was never going to license any more Miss Marples. And the only way they were able to do that is because Matthew Pritchard owned the copyright to they do it with mirrors and wanted to buy an expensive piece of art. Yes, we talked about that on that episode, but I just think that's so fantastic that that's the only reason why a murder with mirrors with Helen Hayes and Betty Davis exists is because Matthew Pritchard wanted some art, you know? Yeah, it's pretty great. No no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. That's the first adaptation. And now we can move on over into our second adaptation, which of course is our beloved Joan Hickson Marple series. This aired on Christmas day in 1989 and It's pretty funny, but whereas the weather was too cold for the Hayes version, for the Hickson version, it was way too hot. And that's because they actually went to Barbados, as we mentioned up top. This, too, is recorded in Mark's book. Uh, As might be expected for September, the temperature was high, leading to the discomfort of some crew and cast, including Hickson, who later said that, quote, it was murder, end quote. However, the discomfort was nothing compared to the dangers of Hurricane Hugo, which shut down production for three days. Because remember, this is in 89. Um, and yeah, Hurricane Hugo was definitely really bad. So that's really interesting that they were there when that was happening. And yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I think of it as the analog to um, the way that the Suchet series filmed Evil Under the Sun on Berg Island in Devon and Dead Man's Folly at Greenway. It's really cool that they were able to film it at the actual location that directly inspired Christie's text. Again, that's the Coral Reef Hotel in Barbados. And, um, Donald Pleasance, who plays Jason Raphael, he actually stayed in the very bungalow where Agatha Christie and Max Mallowan stayed when they were at the hotel. And um, apparently the owners of the hotel who were there when Christie visited, their names were Budge and Cynthia O'Hara. They were the inspirations for the Kendalls, and they were still working there when this adaptation was filmed. Even more crazily, the producer, George Galaccio, he's actually producing Bergerac at this point, um, he stumbled across the hotel by coincidence. He was actually looking for locations and he didn't even realize that Christie had gone to Barbados since again, the book is set in St. Honoré. He said, it was purely by chance we came here, but I had the feeling the island in the book must be an English one. I came to Barbados to have a look around and checked into this hotel because it suggested so well the period when Caribbean Mystery was written and then they realized after the fact that it was the one uh, where Christie stayed and the setting is fantastic in this adaptation. I think it's the best thing about it actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we may have mentioned this at some point, but when the BBC aired this episode in 1989, ITV actually aired the 1983 version two weeks before in an attempt to take the wind out of its sails. Uh, It doesn't seem to have worked, though. I think the ratings were down a little from earlier Hickson Marples, but not very much. I say that the, the, the setting is fantastic, and I think that's true. There's one long shot in particular where Miss Marple is walking through the countryside and she goes under a bridge. And there's actually a Caribbeanized version of the song, the theme song that plays. It's just overall a beautiful shot. It's scored wonderfully. And it feels like the series reaches its previous heights. But overall, I felt like it had a little bit of that depressed feeling that these late Hickson Marple sometimes have. The costuming, again, 
it's technically period, but it really just seems like it was people dressed in clothes from 1989. I, it, it did not feel period to me. The only other thing I want to say about this adaptation in its favor is that there's a sequence where Victoria takes Miss Marple to see her aunt and that it includes a ride on the back of a truck where Miss Marple is the only white person on that truck. And then we see Miss Marple uh, sitting down with Victoria's aunt and she gets all the local gossip. It's charming if a mite patronizing, but I think that it's mainly charming because especially compared to what happens in the ITV version, which we'll get to in a moment, it doesn't feel like the black characters are being othered. It actually feels like the opposite because we do get to know Victoria. We see her among family and friends. And when she's murdered, it's much more effective, honestly, than it is in the text because she never even really feels like that real of a character in the text, which we'll also get to in our rankings. I appreciated that. We even get to see her funeral. Miss Marple attends her funeral. And I thought that it was overall well handled, especially for an adaptation in 1989. And especially when we compare it to the adaptation in 2013, which is when Julia McKenzie was acting as Miss Marple for that series, Agatha Christie's Marple. So this was broadcast in June of 2013. It's fine. It hews pretty closely to the plot. All three of these actually hew very closely to the plot. I have no idea what the temperature was like on set. I'm going to go ahead and assume it was just right since we had too cold and too hot. And I hope Julia McKenzie was very comfortable. My biggest issue with it is that there's a, there's a bunch of performative dancing among the natives of the island. And it feels like everything having to do with the black characters either fetishizes them or clumsily tries to make them sympathetic in sort of like a lazy attempt at taking the sting out of what Christie is doing in the text. Case in point, the reason why Victoria and the, the man she lives with are desperate for money is not simply because they're greedy, which is what the reason is in the book. It's because they have a sick child. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, in taking away their ability to be as venal as the white characters, uh, is this adaptation really doing them any favors? It's the whole sort of let's pretend the marginalized characters are perfect to make ourselves feel better shtick. And I don't, I'm not really buying it. And I think that um, it's just sort of on par with how this series handles those sorts of issues, the sort of hot button issues like race and sexual orientation and sexual violence, et cetera. It, it sort of manages to handle them sometimes more clumsily than Christie did by way of making a hullabaloo about it and doing away with any sort of ambiguity or nuance. And I just really didn't appreciate that because that is not what this book needs. So no. I, on that score, I don't think that it was a very successful successful adaptation, even though, you know, the plot was very much preserved. They also included the character of Ian Fleming, like the author of the Bond series, as, you know, one of the people staying at the hotel, and then the real-life ornithologist James Bond. And yes, apparently Fleming did take the character name from the ornithologist, but he never met him in real life. It's the same thing as when Noel Coward was a character in their adaptation of 450 from Paddington. Right. And it's interesting because Mark does address this in his book and he spoke with the writer of this episode. And what the writer said is, I'm quoting here, the request to include real historical figures came from the production team, presumably with the intention of aiding the publicity drive, since the instruction cannot have been for the benefit of the film itself. And I think that's true. It's just ridiculous. No one thinks that inserting Ian Fleming into a Caribbean mystery 
is for the story. It's just absurd. I, I just there don't are, you even know, really understand how it would be effective for a publicity drive. I don't either. Like, who cares? I think recently I've tried to do a better job of giving the ITV series its due because I know it has a lot of fans, but this was one that really raised my hackles on, on those two like, fronts, you especially. Know, I mean, I hate to say this, but like, especially given the, like, the past Oscar season where there are so many, like, not quite biopics, but like too many, like, oh, this is a story about a real life person. And like, here is going to be like, Judas and the Black Messiah or Mank. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. I would fully prefer, frankly, if you just made something up. (laughs) Right. And I think that when characters are weirdly inserted into other stories, it's just like a no go for me. Yeah. Truly bizarre. I think that all three of these adaptations are fine. None of them is terrible. None of them is great. Which is a little unusual, actually, because usually we have one that's a standout or, you know, in either direction, but they're all fine. There's also, we should mention, Le Petit Mert does this um, episode as well. Indeed, in 2016, they did a French language adaptation. Thank you for uh, saying the title for once, Catherine. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, doing my small part. (laughs) Let's mosey right on into our discussion of the rankings for this. We'll start with plot mechanics and plot credibility, as we always do. John Curran identifies this novel as the last pure whodunit that Christie wrote, which I suppose I agree with. I suppose you can muddle your way to the solution of this puzzle mystery, given the few clues. I actually absolutely do think you can because Christie is relying on so many tricks that she's used before. But as I mentioned, I think at this point, Christie had been writing so long that we can't dock her points for recycling earlier methods of obfuscation, especially since repurposing her puzzle mysteries is sort of a core part of what she did from the beginning. You know, hello, Mysterious Affair at Styles slash Death on the Nile, right? Not to spoil anything, but I think the real question is how well does she recycle? And in this case, I think she recycles pretty well. I think she does do a good job of that clue having to do with where Major Paul Grave is looking. And once we get to the other side of that, it's like, oh, of course, he had a glass eye. And there's so much mention of his glass eye. And of course, he wasn't looking where he seemed to be looking. And, you know, he he was looking on the other side of Miss Marple and that's totally where Tim Kendall was and that feels very obvious and then I think what's going on with Molly Kendall in terms of the uh, poisoning by way of Belladonna slash Atropine we've come across that before I think most famously in the Poirot short story The Cretan Bull which is part of the labors of Hercules collection and that was published a quarter of a century earlier in 1939 I liked the way that you know she was using it here we even get like a small nod toward imprecise pronouns obfuscating matters, which we saw as recently as the mirror cracked from side to side. So I think that she created a quite good puzzle mystery in one of her later novels. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, I think the novel has some other issues, but yeah, I agree with you. And it's an easy read, frankly. Yeah, I think a lot of the issues are more as to character and setting and tone, actually. I think if we divorce the mechanics of the plot 
from some readability issues that the mechanics of the plot are all there. And this is really just a side note, but I found it fascinating. Apparently there was an alternate plot that Christie was toying with in two different places in her notebooks when she was uh, figuring out this novel. It involves a girl who's crippled by polio and she gives up the young man who she was going to marry and then goes to the tropical island where they were going to have their honeymoon. So she seems sort of like this, you know, savior slash martyr, right? Mm -hmm. Who's, who's done the right thing. Very sympathetic character. It turns out that she's the murderer and she kills anyone who is happy. That is the read because she's so embittered as to what happened to her. And apparently Christy was going to have this creepy nurse who would be her attendant. And that would be a major red herring. And I kind of like that. Like that sounds really, really creepy. And I think Christy's version of that would have been really interesting. Gee, that is really interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I I really would have liked to have seen that. So I think, yeah, I think plot mechanics is pretty good. And then plot credibility, the only thing that's a little hard for me to believe, it's not hard for me to believe that there's a serial wife murderer whatsoever. As we mentioned, there are many real life ones that we can point to, uh, you know, throughout all of time. Uh, But I think it's a little hard for me to believe that Tim Kendall would have continued on with his plot to kill Molly once he'd witnessed that Major Paul Grave had put Miss Marple and apparently everyone else on the island on their guard as to the fact that he knew a wife murderer and then that he had that weird interaction with Miss Marple. I guess Tim Kendall could have discounted Miss Marple the way everyone does. And I suppose there was some urgency given the fact that Esther Walters was on the island then, so he could really only woo her then and get her to marry him within this time frame because he knew that Jason Rayfield was going to die soon, you know, sooner rather than later. So it's a quibble, I suppose. I think overall it actually does pretty well as to plot credibility. Yeah, I am actually like very much a fan of both the mechanics and the credibility in this novel. I think that we were talking about going, you know, pretty high, higher than we have recently, perhaps giving them both sevens. I'm okay with that. I am too. I think 14 out of 20 is high, but I think this novel deserves it. I also think it actually deserves a fairly high score in our next category, series-long characters. You know, I suppose Jason Rayfield is a series-long character, although I think maybe we can deal with him more in book-specific characters. I think he's actually one of the much stronger characters that we first meet in this book. But this is, of course, mainly Miss Marple's category. And I think that aside from the awkwardness of the perspective shifts in the book, which we'll deal with in setting and tone. I think that this is a book in which Miss Marple is front and center. She never recedes, as she does do sometimes, especially in some of the earlier Miss Marple novels. It's Miss Marple all the time. It's the Miss Marple show. I am here for that, as you know. And I think we have a lot of really great Miss Marple moments. We've talked about a lot of them in our summary. The only one I want to pull out is when we're first seeing Miss Marple again and and she's on this Caribbean island and she is talking about those modern novels that Raymond West has given her to read. It's very amusing and this is what Christy writes. 
Modern novels, so difficult, all about such unpleasant people doing such very odd things and not apparently even enjoying them. Sex as a word had not been mentioned in Miss Marple's young days, but there had been plenty of it, not talked about so much, but enjoyed far more than nowadays, or so it seemed to her. Though usually labeled sin, she couldn't help feeling that that was preferable to what it seemed to be nowadays, a kind of duty, and duty is capitalized. And then we get an excerpt from this book that Raymond West has been forcing her to read and it's about this miserable girl who's 19 years old and she confesses to this man that she's never had any sexual experience uh, and this, yeah. is the, this is the part that made me chuckle he looked at her stained old jersey the bare feet the dirty toenails the smell of rancid fat he wondered why he found her so maddeningly attractive and then christy writes miss marple wondered too <laughs> exclamation point. i know i read that and i was like wait is this actually in this book i like legitimately read that and thought did i just read what i thought i read it reminded me of a similar passage early on in The Pale Horse, and I think we actually talked about it, but then edited it out of our final cut, where Christy is kind of musing by way of her narrator, Mark Easterbrook, about how girls these days are considered attractive with their sweaty, smelly hair and whatnot. And you can just see Christy's disgust with the young kids of the 60s and how unwashed they are and what a frazzled mess. And I find it amusing and endearing. I, th- I think it's quite fun. Yeah, it's just funny that it's in there. It's really funny that it's in there. And then also, because this was the other part too, where I was, I had a moment where I was like, did I just read this in a Miss Marple novel as well, Catherine? Because further down on the same page, Christy writes, Jane Marple had acquired quite a comprehensive knowledge of the facts of rural life. She had no urge to talk about them, far less to write about them, but she knew them. Plenty of sex, natural and unnatural, rape, incest, perversion of all kinds, some kinds indeed that even the clever young men from Oxford who wrote books didn't seem to have heard about. And that's in parentheses. I was like, wow, okay, we're going there. <laughs> like she, it kind of brings home to me, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about this, but when I read those passages, I can't help thinking of Sarah Phelps, who claims to be writing about the sorts of risque topics that Christie would have written about if she could have. And I just think that it's pretty obvious when you read these texts and you read them closely that Christie was writing exactly what she wanted to write and how she wanted to write it. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely the case. And, you know, I think that she actually is not afraid to touch on a lot of subjects and she never was. I mean, she literally writes about murder. It's why I always take offense with the idea that it's like a quote unquote cozy. They're not cozy. They're about people who are doing absolutely vile deeds. I did also have to point out a major dark marble moment, which I know you'll appreciate, Catherine. And that is when Gregory Dyson toodles on by and he calls out, Penny for your thoughts. And this is what Christie writes. Miss Marple smiled gently, wondering how he would have reacted if she had replied, I was wondering if you were a murderer. and then right after that his rather cheap and tawdry wife lucky comes looking for greg and miss marple thinks to herself 40 if she's a day and looks it this morning i know yeah claws out (laughs) and yet we also have miss marple praying at one point you know in the darkness she sent up a prayer one couldn't do everything oneself one had to have help let's never forget she is in fact a devout 
Christian woman, Dark Marple notwithstanding. I thought it was really interesting that she's the one who refers to herself as Nemesis. It's not Jason Raphael who first calls her Nemesis. Mm -hmm. She actually names herself, and that is going to become significant in a future Miss Marple. We'll talk about it when we get there. But, you know, we already saw her in Avenging Fury mode in A Pocket Full of Rye. We just, we get the full Marple effect here, including even a grand summing up. It is a denouement worthy of Poirot himself, which Jason Raphael basically forces on her. You know, he says, speak up, nemesis. We've got to have chapter and verse of some kind. And she certainly does, despite the fact that she's already laid her trap, which Tim Kendall has fallen right into. So I thought this was a fantastic Miss Marple novel. And I would also give this category a seven. Yeah, I agree with you. I think when you're in her close third person, that's the best parts of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And just as good as past Miss Marples, which is the main reason why this book tends to be beloved by Christie fans and even more casual readers, actually. So let's talk about book specific characters briefly. You know, Christy herself calls out on page one the fact that the Colonel type is, in fact, a type. And as we've mentioned, we've seen this type many times before. Twice, he actually turns out to be the villain. I won't say when. Um, And I think it's kind of a neat trick that in this book, he's the main victim, actually, that he turns out to be the murder victim. And Jason Raphael is a great character. You know, I can see why he makes another appearance, sort of, in a future Miss Marple book. I love when um, they're running through different suspects and he dispenses with, with each one of them so contemptuously. Like for Greg Dyson, he says, can't stand the fellow. And then when he talks about Greg potentially wanting to murder his wife, lucky he says good job too i'd say in fact i'm in sympathy with him he refers to miss marple as quote about a (laughs) hundred and yeah he you know he tells it like it is and i and even though the conversations that he has with miss marple don't amount to much as to the plot i did certainly enjoy them and i enjoyed their interactions Yeah, but I mean, I think that he's really the most compelling character in this. I mean, my argument against this category would be that I don't find the other characters to be interesting. I don't either. I mean, one of the only other interesting moments that I can pull out of the book involving other characters is when actually Miss Prescott and Miss Marple are trying to gossip and the canon keeps on preventing them from doing so. (laughs) And I thought it was interesting in Christie Wright's The two women sat in silence. They were rebuked, and in deference to their training, they deferred to the criticism of a man. But inwardly, they were frustrated, irritated, and quite unrepentant. It's very unfortunate, though, because right after that, Christie dispenses with the canon by having a bunch of children request his presence at the seaside to settle a dispute about water wings, which I had to look up. That's, you know, what we would call floaties or swimmies, like inflatable armbands. Um, Wait, you you don't call them water wings? No, do you? Yeah. Oh, interesting. No, I don't think on the East Coast I I have ever heard them called water wings. Oh, that's what I thought they were called. (laughs) Yeah. But Christy writes, Canon Prescott was extremely fond of children, especially small girls. That was a sentence that was unfortunate to read. And yeah, I already mentioned about Tim Kendall reminding me of Neville Strange. I thought it was pretty effective when the mask comes off and he lashes out at Esther Walters. It's legitimately startling. He says, for God's sake, you damned bitch, shut up, can't you? Do you want to get me hanged? Shut up, I tell you. Shut that big, ugly mouth of yours. It's just really ugly. Yeah, not great. Not great. Not great. So 
you know, I think the, the book specific characters are middling. So I think if we're, I think it deserves anywhere between a four and a six. A five, I think, is pretty kind, but not overly so. I would be okay with a five if you were. Okay. Let's give it a five. And then setting and tone is good, I think, but not great. This is Miss Marple's only case abroad. We should remember Christy toyed, actually, with the idea of using her for Death on the Nile. And apparently she considered sending her abroad shortly before writing 450 from Paddington. But I'm glad that she got to leave domestic shores eventually. But given that the setting is as prominent as it is, I mean, it is in the title. I found it to be oddly meh for Christy. I don't mind when the setting is understated. I actually think some of the mysteries set abroad do have understated settings that work quite well, especially her settings in the Middle East where she writes with such confidence because she had spent so much time there. I didn't get the same sense of the Caribbean here. I mean, we know that she went to Barbados, but it didn't feel... It just didn't feel as ingrained in the book as I think some of those Middle East settings do. It just doesn't particularly feel like a setting. There's like sort of a beach. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it doesn't feel like that has anything to do with the Caribbean. Like it just doesn't feel, well, and the parts that do, which we're going to get to in a second, feel like, oof. That's like the weirdest thing about this. It's like you set a book on a tropical island and why isn't there anything about the ocean or anything descriptive? I just, I don't get it. There's mention of a hibiscus plant. And as you mentioned, the resort goers all drink planter's punch. Yes. That's it. There's a lot of planner's punch, but I agree with you. I think in a weird way, her novella, Triangle at Rhodes, and then the novel that she kind of sort of turned that into, Evil Under the Sun, they have such fantastic holiday settings where we get that sense of the bodies baking on the beach and we can feel the, the surf and the sand and the caves and these little inlets of this island and the suntan lotion that they were using, et cetera, et cetera. She's done it before. She just, her heart doesn't seem in it here. It's just not there. And then tone-wise, this is my biggest problem with it. I think that the shifts in perspective are not great. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it makes the, for a slightly awkward read. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's confusing. I, I think overall, though, I found this to be a very easy to read, Christy. I breezed my way through it, I, even though... Well, I found it easy to read, too, except for the fact that I just had to realize after a few pages that the perspective was going to be bizarre. And once you realize that, then you're like, okay, I'll just roll with it. So it's totally easy to read. It's yeah. just, it's... Uh... I think because of that, I tend not to be too down on this category, even though it doesn't deserve the eights that I think we almost tend to give by default for Christy when she's doing everything she normally does, you know, because she's so good as to this category. But where do you come down on this, Catherine? I mean, I guess if I'm going to be generous, Kemper, I wouldn't personally want to give it a six, but at the same time, I feel like, I guess I can see just based on readability coming out there. Yeah. I I mean, a five 
definitely feels too low to me, even though I understand what you're saying. I think let's give it a six if you're comfortable with that. And we very well may be revisiting this category when we yeah, you know, I, do our I, state of the rankings. I can, I can because, be okay with it for now. I, I just find it so uneven. I hear you. I hear you. All right. So six for setting a tone. And now we get to depictions stuck in their time that we find in this book. And unfortunately, this is a big issue. I think that's not going to come as a surprise to anyone who's ever read this book. I think, unfortunately, that's something else that this book is known for, that it has some problematic depictions happening here. You know, very early we are told, quote, there was even a family of Chinese at the resort. That's just a very awkward sentence, but that is the least of our problems here. By far, the depictions that feel stuck in their time are those involving the black characters in the novel, specifically Victoria and the man that she lives with, who we eventually learn is named Jim. And almost every time we see them, Christy simply can't stop commenting on their appearance. We get many references to the whiteness of their teeth, the blackness of their skin. And it seems, in fact, as though these characters are little more than their appearance. And I hate to say this, but I was reminded of the depictions we struggled with in Hickory Dickory Dock in this sense. And I'm not going to go through all of those depictions because quite honestly, it would take too long. It would be too depressing. And I think it's well, it's uh, also that there's not necessary. It's also that a lot of their, it will go from like Victoria speaking perfectly Queens English to a page later speaking in like Patois. And it's like well, bizarre I think to give Christy credit there. I think part of what she's doing is that when she's speaking with, the white characters of the novel, she's quote unquote passing, right? Like, and it's, and like, speaking. it's, it's code switching is what you're trying to yes. argue. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I suppose, I suppose that would be giving Christy credit. I don't know that it's deserved. Um, well, the problem is that she's not doing it well and that I don't think the scenes that involve her with Jim, Mm-hmm. when they're speaking in this sort of patois feel authentic or grounded in the way that any of her other scene. And this is the same problem we came across with Hickory Dickory Dock. There was just a surreal quality almost or a, or a jokiness to the scenes involving non-white characters that just really takes you out of the story and feels unintentionally, I'm sure, a little contemptuous. And we get that same effect here. I mean, I will just, I think it's always better to quote a little bit from the text. But when we do find Victoria and Jim in their home, this is what Christy writes. Outside the hotel grounds in one of a row of shanty cabins beside a creek, the girl Victoria Johnson rolled over and sat up in bed. The St. Honoré girl was a magnificent creature with a torso of black marble such as a sculptor would have enjoyed. She ran her fingers through her dark, tightly curling hair. With her foot, she nudged her sleeping companion in the ribs. And then when the man wakes up, he's described as having, quote, a wide mouth and beautiful teeth. And then the dialogue between them is somewhat stilted, though in that specific scene, it's not as bad as we've seen in Hickory Dickory Dock, for example, but it gets a lot worse in a later scene, which I'll quote from just a tiny bit. I think as I am on to something, man, what's that you say, Victoria? I think I'm on to something. It may mean money, big money. 
Now look, girl, you be careful. You'll not tangle yourself up in something. Maybe I'd better tackle what it is. Victoria laughed, a deep, rich chuckle. You wait and see, she said. I know how to play this hand. It's money, man. It's big money. Something I see and something I guess. I think I guess right. And again, the soft, rich chuckle rolled out on the night. It's Um, not like, I mean, listen, it could be a lot worse. It could. We don't have racial slurs here. We're not in that category of offensiveness in terms of the language that we're encountering here. It really more is as to characterization and depiction. It's not the language itself. It's the way that she is presenting these characters to us within the story. I think that it's additionally hurt by the fact that the setting and tone aren't very good. Like, I feel like if we're really firmly felt in and of a place, you might be like, I mean, very slightly willing to give it more of a pass. It might might jar less because we do have the same effect when she brings in Arab characters tangentially, right? To some of her her Middle Eastern Arab or Armenian or Persian, (laughs) etc. characters to her novels or stories set in the Middle East. But yes, if you feel that they're truly anchored in their place and even in their time, I think that helps. Yeah, um, and I just think that the this seems like, ooh, wait. Oh, I just totally forgot other than if I look at the title of this book. And I was reading it on a Kindle, so I couldn't even like flip to the cover and be reminded that I was reading a Caribbean mystery. So yeah. it was just like you forget where you are in it because it's not well rendered. And then you're getting this really weird sequence of interludes. Yeah. I also think it's worth noting that even Senora di Caspiaro, mm-hmm. who is a Latin woman who features in a minor role, we haven't even mentioned her <laughs> in our summary, she too is rather objectified. I think Christine notes via narration her long, beautiful legs. And then in the one scene where we see a bit more of her later in the novel, she's talking about how Major Palgrave had, quote, the evil eye. I mean, it's the the chapter that's mentioning the eye. And she talks about how she's happy he's dead because he's ugly and she doesn't have to look at him anymore. <laughs> and... It's sort of like that old chestnut in Christie of, oh, these Latins are so blunt and cruel, aren't they? You know, the same thing she sort of does with Italians. And that's also not great. And the only other bit of dialogue I want to mention, it is out of Jason Rayfield's mouth, but he says this of um, the Kendalls. And I would imagine that many people noted this as well, because it's kind of shocking to read. They've both worked like blacks, though that's an odd term to use out here, for blacks don't work themselves to death at all, so far as I can see. Was looking at a fellow shinning up a coconut tree to get his breakfast. Then he goes to sleep for the rest of the day. Nice life. We don't actually have too many. There are a couple of other passages peppered throughout in which you have the white characters talking about the non-white characters in this way. There aren't that many of them, or else I think we'd be docking even more points but there are a few and they're extremely distasteful so there's that as well yeah not great but i mean again i think we have seen worse (laughs) so we've 
totally seen worse as a final note i was shook Catherine, that it seemed as though the major basis for one of miss marple's village parallels she's making this parallel in the whole novel between arthur jackson and jonas perry they're both ne'er-do-wells mm-hmm. jackson the valet and then jonas perry someone from saint mary mead and it seems that the basis for her comparison is facial resemblance and it just struck me because we actually just finished doing a patreon episode <laughs> about the daughter of time by josephine tay and about we talked about how yeah how sort of in you know this mid-century notion of physiognomy denoting character and the way that people look you know using the way that people look as a window onto how they are and what their character is how people really believed in that you know, Mm -hmm. 50 years ago in a way that we just don't today. And it just really upset me that I think that probably is part of the basis of Miss Marple's village parallels, that she's going by facial structure or expression or head shape or what have you. Well, I mean, at least she doesn't have her calipers out and is like measuring people. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. I suppose we should uh, be grateful for that. So, I think this all adds up to a significant amount of deductions, even though we have taken off more for past books. We're coming out on three deductions, I believe. Yeah, I think that seems right. It is time to tally up our scores here. We have seven plus seven plus seven plus five plus six minus three for a grand total of 29 points, putting a Caribbean mystery not in a tie. Yet again, we do not have a tie. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. I know, right? A Caribbean mystery is officially in 31st place out of 55 novels, and it actually is sandwiched between two Miss Marple novels. It is (laughs) just below They Do It With Mirrors and just above A Pocket Full of Rye. And while I think there might be an argument to be made that it should be slightly above They Do It With Mirrors, I'm not convinced of that, actually. And I think that it makes sense for it to be hovering around those two novels and to be in the middle of the pack. Yeah, that feels I right. think so. I mean, again, as we said, it's very readable. It's just that if you're actually going to nitpick, there's a lot to nitpick. This is a good Miss Marple novel and I think overall an enjoyable Christie, just not one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. That is a Caribbean mystery. We have now covered 55 novels, Catherine. We're oh my gosh. getting down to the wire here. We're going to be entering single digits soon. I oh hate to alarm you, but... That's like really alarming. I know. We, of course, will not be covering a novel in our next episode. We will be covering a short story. It will be a Poirot short story. We will be reading The Adventure of Johnny Waverly. Another of these early, early ish Poirot short stories. We've actually, I think at this point, covered all the super early Poirots, but we still have some uh, spot cleaning to do <laughs> in and among the Poirots that we left out along the way in our earlier coverage. So that will be next time. And then the novel that we're covering after that will be a Miss Marple novel. We have two Miss Marple novels in a row. We will be covering at Bertram's Hotel, which I'm very excited for. I think this is going to be another 
another good Miss Marple novel, similar to A Caribbean Mystery. But uh, who knows? Maybe it shall exceed my expectations. Maybe it shall fall far below them. I mean, I think it's, it's very exciting to have things to look forward to. It is indeed. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on a Caribbean mystery or Miss Marple or Jason Raphael or, you know, anything else. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also check out our bonus content over on www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And if you could just take a moment to rate and review us, we would really appreciate it. It helps others find the podcast, and we love hearing from you in that form as well. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.